Good afternoon. It is Thursday, the 20th of October, and it is 1.01 p.m. here on the West Coast of the United States. And we have a very interesting conversation lined up. I think uh, we will all benefit from it. So uh, one thing I will warn you is that you got to put your thinking cap on and your theology cap on uh, to, to get ready uh, for this conversation. Uh, I will introduce my guest as uh, you guys come in. Don't forget to hit that like button. It's always, you know, helps when it comes to the YouTube algorithm. So uh, without uh, any further to do, I will introduce Dr. Carl Moser. Uh, I'm going to read a little bio. Thank you for joining me. Uh, thanks for agreeing to do this. I'm excited for this because last time we had an interview, we sp spoke about um, theosis, and uh, and then we spoke about how we need to do something on atonement because of your extensive, very extensive re research uh, on this subject. So thanks for being here today. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Thank you. So let me just give a little breakdown of uh, your education. Um, you have a degree, a bachelor, uh, a BA degree in languages and biblical studies from Life Pacific University that is now. Um, and then you have three MAs in philosophy, New Testament and theology from Talbot School of Theology. You got a THM in the philosophy of religion from Fuller and a PhD in the New Testament from the University of St. Andrews. That's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Um, it might not be as impressive as it sounds, though. The, the three MAs at Talbot, I, I was there three years, had to do with reduction credits and uh, from my undergraduate and things like this that just made it where the classes I took divided up that way. Um, so. They work, but, but yeah. it's great. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's again, it, it's it's amazing because plenty of people will go one route, right? Like some people will get uh, their, just like they'll, they're philosophers. Uh, and then sometimes I'll look at the philosophers and they're doing theology and you're like, oh man, like it's kind of cringe. Uh, and then sometimes you see theologians doing theology and then their philosophy is cringe. Uh, they're yeah. making some very basic philosophical mistakes, but you, you have degrees in, in both of these, in theology and in philosophy, but more what I love is kind of at the beginning and the end portion of your education is that you did languages and biblical studies and then did New Testament. <laughs> so that's a really nice sandwich there. Yeah. Um, well, you know, when I graduated from college, I, I was doing biblical studies. I had an interest in theology. And that's what I went to Talbot to study was theology. And uh, but before going, looking at the catalog, I had this this attraction to the philosophy degree even though I'd never taken a philosophy course in my life. And I couldn't have pronounced the word epistemology to save my life. <laughs> um, but I, I just thought, you know, I need to consider doing that. And I, I started taking a few philosophy classes and I found it really beneficial. And uh, when I got done with Talbot, I took a year off, got married. And then uh, I was talking to a friend thinking, I you know, I, I was telling him, I really feel like I could use a little more philosophy. 
And he said, well, have you thought about a, a THM? I said, well, who does a THM in philosophy? He said, well, Fuller does. And I looked into it and sure enough, uh, and I signed up. And, uh, and of course, I also came back to philosophy after doing the New Testament degree um, at St. Andrews. Uh, I had a, a, a fellowship at the University of St. Andrews and I was uh, housed in the uh, philosophy department and the Center for Philosophy of Religion. Uh, so I, I've gone back and forth a few times between the disciplines. Well, I see it as a good balance, especially as we're going to discuss this, because uh, we're going to be talking about like the theological aspect of it, maybe some what, what philosophical implications and thinking through it properly, some maybe distinctions in the way we explain certain terms and words, yes. uh, and also whether this is actually a teaching that uh, the Bible gives us. Um, or is it the only teaching that the Bible gives us? Some, you know, we'll discuss that. I think we said time-wise we're pretty open. I because you, you were like you warned me. You're like we might go over your hour, so I'm good. We can do that. Okay. So we, when you say we're done, then we'll be done. Uh, I'm gonna let you uh, kind of uh, guide us. Okay, so the substitutionary uh, kind of theory of atonement, as or the penal substitutionary theory of atonement, as it is called. Um, where do we begin with this? I mean, is it a, a pure um, development out of the Reformation? Um, do we see it historically beforehand? Um, when we say, is it biblical, is it not biblical? I mean, where do you want to start with this? The, what's the best place? Yeah. I think the first thing to note is that there's just a lot of equivocation on what this phrase, penal substitutionary atonement, means. And there, there's a whole history to that language. And that language is not uh, the language of the Reformers. It's not the language of the Medievals or the Church Fathers. Uh, that's relatively modern language. And so there's the first question is, okay, what does it refer to in relation to the long history of theology? Um, and that language really becomes popularized in the 19th century. Um, now, elements of it are, are, uh, show up previously, but that language, penal substitutionary atonement, uh, in the 19th century comes to replace the older language that you find in the reformers and medievals of satisfaction and uh, 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 penal satisfaction. Um, and so when we're talking about penal substitutionary atonement, one of the questions is, well, do we mean what the reformers meant by the doctrine of satisfaction, uh, or do we mean some post-reformational view? Um, and a lot of folks just don't even look at that difference in language, but it is an important shift that takes place. And in the 19th century, early 20th century, we had theologians uh, complaining about the fact that we're no longer using as Protestants the traditional language in which our theology was formulated. Mm. Uh, so if you were to look at um, any of the great Protestant confessions, Augsburg Confession, uh, the Westminster Confession, the Scots Confession, I mean, any of them, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, whether we're talking Lutheran, Anglican, Reformed, or Baptist, None of them talk about penal substitution. They all talk about uh, Christ making satisfaction for sin. Uh, 19th century, Charles Hodge, in his systematic theology, 
uh, complains about the fact that the word atonement is replacing the word satisfaction. And he says, look, um, th these words do not quite mean the same thing. Uh, atonement is less precise. It doesn't allow for the same distinctions as satisfaction does. This is not the language the church has traditionally used. Um, and he said, if you want to retain the old doctrines, you need to retain the old words. And I think there's something to that. Um, generation later, B.B. Uh, Warfield makes the same complaint. And a generation after him, uh, J. Gresson Machen makes that same complaint. Where all three of them, and interestingly, all Princetonian theologians, are saying there, there's a problem with this shift from satisfaction language to atonement language that is leading to a loss of what Protestants have historically taught. Now, I think, you know, when some people use penal substitutionary atonement, they certainly intend for this to be a referent to classic Protestant theology. But then when you look at definitions that are offered or the way it gets unpacked, often it becomes clear that what's really in view is not the teaching of the confessions and the reformers, but a post-Reformation development of that teaching that uh, came about in the 17th century in response to Socinianism. And for others... Which, which it, is what? Sorry, just... just well, for... we'll come back to that in just a moment. Okay. Um, but I, I want to also say, but for some today, penal substitutionary atonement it isn't even the, the nuanced, sophisticated 17th century development of the doctrine of satisfaction. It's a kind of simplified version of it that lacks a lot of nuances and a lot of distinctions that folks like John Owen, Francis Turretin, uh, uh, you know, we could cite a whole bunch of, of these figures, uh, Reformed, Lutheran, and, and Anglican alike. Um, what, what we get is something that is in some ways um, cruder, right, in that it's less sophisticated and less nuanced. And that's really where, where the debate has been focused on in the last 20 years. And part of what's happened in the last 20 years is that, that even what evangelicals internationally have understood to be kind of the, the basic notion of penal substitutionary atonement, uh, that that meaning has changed too, to where it's narrowed down to this simplified version of a 17th century doctrine that no longer, in some circles, how people understand penal substitutionary atonement can no longer um, uh, account for views or, or include views that that in the past were taken to be paradigmatic exemplars of penal substitution. Uh, so you know, somebody like I. Howard Marshall or John Stott or Leon Morris, who, you know, in the, the latter half of the 20th century were exemplars of uh, an evangelical theology of penal substitutionary atonement. What they understood by that is not what is often understood today. Um, and so we end up with uh, lots of equivocation because, of course, some people say, well, I, I, I hold to what Leon Morris or Howard Marshall said. And others are thinking of, of uh, kind of this view that's been re that's re-emerged in the Young Restless Reformed movement, which is a simplified version of the 17th century doctrine 
it, it disagrees with the reformational doctrine on some really key points. And um, so when you ask, is it biblical? Well, I want to say, well, it depends which version of the doctrine you're talking about. Um, and, you know, is, is, it, um, is it required for orthodoxy? Well, again, it depends which version of the doctrine we're talking about. And there are some who would take that young restless reform version and say that is the Protestant view. One must hold to it to be an Orthodox evangelical. If you don't, you're a heretic. Uh, if you disagree with it and think there's some other version, you're redefining the doctrine or something. And I scratch my head and say, well, have you read any of the primary sources of the tradition here? Because it sure doesn't look like it. And unfortunately, a lot of scholars, this isn't just popular level kind of stuff. A lot of scholars haven't done the reading of the primary sources to understand the variety of ways this language has been used, the distinctions that were often presupposed by our forebears, and, uh, and just the way in which people today talk past one another because sometimes they mean very different things by penal substitutionary atonement. Okay, so we've mentioned three different ways in... Uh, this, this theory has kind of progressed or been used. Uh, why don't we, like, if you can, to define them uh, or the, the meaning. I mean, uh, yeah. I, I guess, you, you know, it's difficult to maybe do that, but to the best of your abilities, what, what would have been kind of the view that the reform, you said it's satisfaction. So what mm -hmm. would be this, this view? So on, on a reformational view, uh, what you've got is a, they develop a, a, an understanding of the work of Christ in response to late medieval Catholic teaching. Um, and the late medieval Catholic view was that uh, Christ, in his uh, obedience, suffering, and death, makes satisfaction for sin uh, with regard to original sin and actual sin, so we've got a distinction here first on sin, right, between original and actual. However, the effects of this differ with respect to each type of sin. So on the, the medieval Catholic view, which is still official uh, Roman uh, teaching today, um, though, though sometimes the late medieval folks kind of went in directions that modern Catholic theologians would object to as well, uh, because they, they also acknowledge there were problems that Luther rightly identified, um, even if they don't fully agree with Luther's solution. But you've got uh, this late, late medieval view that says Christ makes satisfaction. Satisfaction is understood as a kind of compensation or reparation for wrong. And it averts punishment in the retributive sense. Okay, so... Um, there, there, we have lots of uh, uh, theological lexicons and legal lexicons of the day, and it's very easy to establish how people understood the concept of satisfaction. It's a kind of reparation or compensation done by somebody who has done wrong or somebody acting on their behalf, right? A, a vicar, vicariousness, a substitute, to, to make amends, right, for that wrong. So that the person who's been offended does not mete out retribution that may be justly owed. Um, it's a way of propitiating the offended party. Uh, propitiation being understood in the classic sense of to render somebody pleased, 
to avert their anger, to turn it aside. Um, so kind of a mundane example would be, um, I do something that offends you and I'm in the wrong, right? Um, uh, and you have a right to, to have me punished or to punish me. But I realize I've made a mistake, right? And I, I confess, man, Arthur, I, I'm wrong. I did the wrong thing. I'm sorry for it. Let me make it up to you. And I do something to make it up to you. Now, as the offended person, you can either accept that or not accept that. Now, if you accept it, then you're not going to mete out retribution, right? Even though it's justly deserved, rather in an act of mercy and compassion, you say, Carl, I, I, I appreciate that you acknowledge your wrongdoing. I appreciate your sorrow and what you did to make up for it. Uh, that really is meaningful to me. And therefore, I'm not going to uh, uh, be angry at you anymore. We're on good terms again, right? We've restored our relationship. So this notion of satisfaction is the idea of doing enough. That's what satisfactio means, right? To do enough. Well, to do enough to appease the party that's offended, to, to put things back to rights, to do enough to make amends. So the, the, the Catholic view is that Christ does this in our place, on our behalf, for original sin. And that takes care of the guilt the culpa of original sin, and it takes care of the poena, the, the, the penalty for original sin, which is eternal damnation. But then when it comes to actual sin, right, so everybody's born with original sin, um, somebody who dies in infancy may not have actual sin because they haven't reached a point to express their volition in a sinful way, but um, in terms of actual sin, the, the Catholic view as well, uh, Christ's satisfaction takes care of the culpa, the guilt of actual uh, of your actual sin. But it does not do away with the whole punishment of it, the poena. Hmm. So the, there's a penalty that remains, and uh, and here's where the the sacrament of penance comes in. The sacrament of penance teaches that uh, for your actual sins, you need to, of course, show uh, that you know that you did what was wrong. You confess it, and it gets uh, parsed out in terms of, uh, of actual confession to a priest. So now it's not just confessing it to God or confessing it to, to a brother or sister in Christ, but must be to a priest. Um. And that you show contrition, and then you do works of satisfaction in order to appease God and to propitiate him. And what the work of Christ does on that view is it transmutes or, or changes that eternal penalty into a temporal penalty that you pay. Okay, so the priest will say, okay, um, uh, Arthur, you've done a sin, you're, you've confessed it, you're contrite. Here is an appropriate penalty for you to discharge to make up for your wrongdoing. 
Now, in, in the better parts of medieval theology, this can be understood in a very medicinal kind of way, right? Mm. And so Aquinas will talk about a, a kind of a medicinal poena, one that is designed to help you overcome the sin and grow spiritually. Uh, but it also gets understood by others in terms of it, it's, it's a self-punishment designed to propitiate God. And that you have to do this in order to expiate the punishment and to get rid of it. And if you don't do enough works of satisfaction now, then you are going to experience punishment in purgatory. But the difference is it'll be worse than if you did it now, because now you get to freely do it of your own accord, right? Uh, therefore, the penalty is less than it would be if it's inflicted upon you. In purgatory, God will inflict the penalty on you as punishment for all the temporal penalties you've earned because of your temporal sin until you're purified and can enter into heaven, right? So this is the view that the reformers are objecting to. Okay. So this is now, they, just because there's misunderstandings, uh, I think, amongst largely Protestants as yeah. to what Catholics believed and maybe even believe when it comes to justification sort of language. And if I'm running ahead, just stop me and tell me yeah. you're running ahead. Um, is that this medieval Catholic review would have essentially said um, you're justified in the sense of this original sin is, is taken care of meaning you will inhabit eternity eventually, but you gotta, you gotta own up and care for, or take care of the sins that you are committing yourself through penance, through all this different stuff. And eventually purgatory, purgatory being a place. And this is another thing that's, I think misunderstood uh, amongst generally the populace is that purgatory is a place only believers go to. Correct. Correct. So unbelievers are just never going to go to purgatory. It is for believers correct to finish their sanctification process. Yes. Maybe I'm using yes. some Protestant lingo here, but um, the, the what I'm seeing at least is this difference and distinction between what we would call justification and sanctification, uh, where maybe in the medieval Catholic uh, setting, uh, this is a bit more syncretized than, than, you know, disjointed and separated. Would that be a fair analysis? Uh, I think so. Uh, you get into reformational debates about justification, and they are all tied to this mm. uh, this core issue. Um, there, there are some differing ways on both sides of the divide in terms of, of how justification gets parsed out. Uh, but a, a common Protestant complaint of the Catholic view is that it conflates sanctification and justification, and that it makes your your works of satisfaction uh the meritorious grounds upon which you are declared just and the the protestant view says no um your works of satisfaction don't make you just in god's sight um that's only done by the satisfaction of christ christ made and this is the language you're going to find in a lot of the reformers and the confessions is uh, they'll say Christ made complete satisfaction for sin. Ah. And that word complete is a key term because what they're getting at is they're, they're, they're saying, well, if we've got 
two types of sin, original and actual. And for each type of sin, there's guilt and punishment uh, that's incurred by it. You've kind of got four things here, right? Two things of guilt and two things of punishment that need to be taken care of. And the Protestant complaint amounts to, okay, on your view, my Roman Catholic neighbor, um, the work of Christ is fully taken care of only three out of the four. But we have to take care of the fourth one in cooperation with the work of Christ. And the reformers say, no, uh, the work of Christ takes care of all the guilt of both original and actual sin and the punishment before God. It doesn't just take the eternal penalty and turn it into a temporal penalty. Uh, the work of Christ takes care of it completely. And thus, there is no need for purgatory. There are no, there's no need for indulgences. Uh, there's no need for special masses that are designed to accrue merit on your behalf or on behalf of somebody that you care for, uh, like if you're paying the priest to do the mass or something, right? So that's a lot of background to so get the, to what yeah. did the reformers mean. The reason why I'm saying this is because I want to be gracious to the Catholics as well, because, mm -hmm. you know, it's, uh, you, you were speaking about how we talk past uh, a good amount uh, each other when we discuss these things. There'll be accusations like, um, oh, Catholics don't think that, uh, you know, Christ's death is, uh, you know, enough for, you, for your salvation. And then the Catholic response is going to be, no, 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 we do. You have a misunderstanding here. Here's what we're trying to say. And, and people just miss that out. That's why I asked for clarification on that issue. Yeah, uh, and I, I think you're right. There, there, There is a lot of ignorance on the part of modern Protestants of what the Catholic view is. Um, when it comes to the Reformers, however, we're, we're in a whole different ballgame because, of course, many of them had been Catholic priests. They had been monks. Mm -hmm. Um, they, you know, some of them had been professors of theology, like Martin Luther. Um, <clears throat> and many of them were well acquainted with uh, a broad range of medieval uh, theology, uh, as well as the theology of contemporaries that they dealt with at the Sorbonne or at Leuven or other universities that, that were kind of involved in Reformation debates. Um, and then, of course, they had disputations with people like Cardinal Cajetan and uh, um, uh, Eck and, you know, others. Um, so they, they had firsthand knowledge, uh, both from experience, from their education, and from their interactions with their contemporaries. I mean, it would be safe to say at one point or another, a good amount of these people actually believed these things and taught it. Oh, of course, yeah. of course. Um, I mean, people like uh, Martin Luther, Martin Butzer... Uh, Peter Martyr Vermeule, uh, they had all been priests who would have assigned works of satisfaction to penitents who had confessed to them, and they had all made confession and done those works uh, to other priests, right? They done made confession to other priests and who assigned them works of satisfaction to do. And of course, this is a big issue in uh, Luther's biography, is that he... Um, is doing lots and lots of works of penance, and yet he's constantly afraid of God hmm. uh, because he's afraid of what he's going to experience in purgatory 
uh, because he knows that his his confessions are never adequate to get at the whole of the wrong he has done. Uh, you know, and, and you think about sin. Whenever you confess sin, you you think, well, gosh, but then you know, was my attitude totally right about this? Am I as sorrowful as I ought to be? Am I as contrite as I ought to be? And and you can get yourself into a real spiritual pretzel over all that. Um, and part of Luther's claim is, uh, look, when, when I read the New Testament, I read Romans, I read Galatians, I don't see a place here saying I have to do works of satisfaction to have right standing before God. I don't have to worry about God punishing me in the hereafter before I get into heaven. Christ has done uh, the whole of what needs to be done to deal with sin in both its original form and its actual form in terms of the guilt and the punishment both. Now, the reformers aren't denying the fact that that there are, of course, temporal consequences, which you could call penalties, that we experience nonetheless. But it's not God punishing us for the sin in, in, in the sense that, oh, Christ didn't do enough, or he only lessened it. It's, well, this is the way the world works. There, you, you reap what you sow. Um, so, you know, a man who, uh, say, is um, he's a Christian, but he, he's unfaithful to his wife, right? It's a very bad sin, uh, a terrible sin. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if he's truly contrite and he repents, uh, you know, he, he may experience God's forgiveness and his wife's forgiveness, and yet there are still consequences of it, right? There's a level of distrust. There's the brokenness of his marriage, that he, the pain he has caused. And interestingly, in this case, that penalty is actually borne by somebody else in addition to him. His wife is experiencing it. And one of the interesting things about the language here is that, the, you know, the phrase penal substitutionary atonement, the penal part is supposed to come from uh, the language of the confessions and the reformers about penalty, poena, which can also mean pain, right? It, it can mean pain, penalty. Um, it, it's not simply the, it's not equivalent to the English word penal as a synonym for criminal. Yeah. It's not right? a purely as, legal, uh, what you're saying is not, it's, it's not a purely legal designation. Correct. Correct. Um, so that's why Aquinas can distinguish, for example, between uh, poena, medicinalis, this, this medicinary kind of penalty that might be good for your soul and help you grow and not conduct a certain sin again, right? So, you know, you have a, um, uh, a, a propensity toward gluttony, okay? Um, uh, a proper poena would be fasting. Right, you 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 do deliberate fasting, um, not as a work to make you pleasing to God, but as part of what we would call your sanctification. Right, to deal with that sin uh, and help you to overcome it. Um, and the medieval theologians and reformers alike knew of distinctions of different kinds of penalty. Right, so you've got the, these uh, medical types, medicinal types. You've got a poena satisfactoria, 
uh, a penalty that makes satisfaction or makes compensation. But you also have penalties that are uh, the penalty simpliciter when somebody inflicts it upon another, right? So the first two are penalties that the wrongdoer may take upon himself. The third is one in which the wronged party or their representative or the state inflicts it upon the wrongdoer. Mm. Right? And, and the, these, I think, are, are once you think about it, rather basic distinctions, but they're completely lost in the atonement literature today. Right? Nobody's distinguishing differing kinds of penalty. Um, and the reformers themselves draw distinctions in addition to those medieval ones. Uh, Calvin in the Institutes, for example, uh, distinguishes between uh, fatherly chastisement and judicial punishment. Okay. Now, we, we talk about punishing our children. But when we do that, we're not thinking in terms of punishment the way in which a judge punishes a criminal. Right? There, there's, it's, look, yeah, there, there's a similarity in that, well, this is the consequence for wrongdoing. It is deserved. Maybe it's retributive in the, the broad sense of it is the, the proper or just reward. It's what you've earned, merited for your action. Right. Uh, of course, in this case, a negative action. Mm-hmm. And, and if somebody does something above and beyond the call of duty, then in the positive sense, retribution comes in is here's here's something that that rewards your good doing. Right. But when it comes to to children, we talk about chastisement, Calvin says. Um, when we're talking about criminals, we're talking about this judicial sense of punishment. Now, both are poena. Both are penalty. Well, the obvious question is going to be, well, which kind did Christ bear on our behalf? And I think from the 17th century on, the predominant view in Protestant theology, uh, at least in more traditional forms of Protestant theology, has been that it's the criminal poena that Christ endures. Um, Not so much the kind of parental chastisement. But one of Calvin's favorite passages to cite in relation to the work of Christ is from Isaiah 53. He bore the chastisement of our peace, right? And and chastisement uh, in Hebrew, mutsar, is uh, discipline, correction. It's not judicial retribution and vengeance. Um, It's it's, it's similar to the, uh, the... Yakah of uh, the Davidic covenant in 1 Samuel 7, where God says that um, when he sins, talking about David's son, God will punish him. But that's not the kind of uh, judicial retribution and vengeance that many people today have in mind. It's, it's God being as a father to the Davidic king and the Davidic king being as a son to God. And of course, when this is fulfilled in Christ, there is no wrongdoing on the son's part, but he experiences mm. these, these consequences, these penalties on our behalf. Uh, but we have here, right, lots of distinctions that have been lost in recent 
uh, discussion of atonement. And by recent, I really mean, you know, basically the last 150 years. Okay, so in, in the, the 17th century, you, you, it gets focused only on the criminal stuff. Well, not quite only, but it gets it, predominantly. It, it becomes predominantly. Okay. So what you've got in the 16th century with the reformers is the majority view is that um, Christ made satisfaction for sin on our behalf in our place, right? This is the substitutionary element. Mm -hmm. He bears the penalties for sin. And again, they're drawing on a lot of medieval theology here. So there's a lot that they presuppose that a modern reader doesn't always know about and thus can often misread what they're saying. Right? But the penalties for sin are going to include all the penalties of original sin. That's not just eternal death. It's uh, the curse of the land uh, that we experience when weeds pop up in our, or, and bugs eat our plants. Mm. It's um, uh, the, the defects of our human nature post-fall. Uh, we weary, we're hungry, we, we get ill. Right? There are all sorts of things that are just wrong with our bodies physically. Uh, things go wrong in the world. Uh, there are earthquakes, there are fires, there are floods. Um, and in the, the Reformational confessions, uh, this, this gets summarized as all the miseries of this life. I, I think that comes straight from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Mm -hmm. All the miseries of this life are penalties of original sin as well as the eternal penalty. Well, the reformational view is Christ comes into this world freely at the Father's sending, and he endures all these penalties of sin. Okay, Now, these penalties are also referred to as the curse and as the wrath of God. So they take the view that in this sense, Christ, over the whole course of his life, bore the curse and bore the wrath of God culminating in the passion and the crucifixion okay so that you just made a very important point there that i, I don't want people to miss um because in modern kind of evangelical circles all we talk about is the cross like it's the death yeah. but you said yes. over the course of his entire life yes he bore this so the entire incarnation yes but and then it or, culminates it, it yeah focuses at in least, with the Passion Week. Now, um, at least from the moment of his circumcision on, right? So sometimes uh, uh, seven, or 16th century theologians will talk about just his entire life. When they're being a little bit more precise, they'll say, well, he could have been incarnate without experiencing this stuff. Huh. So we don't want to say that, that this is the result of taking humanity upon himself per se. It is him taking humanity in the form of the servant of Isaiah 53. Which is essentially he, he, he becomes a covenant person under the law. That's yes. what you mean, yeah, with That's the right. circumcision. And so at the moment of circumcision, he, he takes upon himself the law. And some of them will say the first drop of blood shed for our salvation was the drop of blood shed at his circumcision. Wow. Okay, so the, the language for this, the technical language is to say, okay, Christ um, 
redeems us by his obedience. Now, this is also a, a big difference between modern and, and reformational is the what makes it efficacious is not suffering per se or a certain quantity of suffering. It's his perfect obedience. So Philippians 2, he obeyed even the, to the point of death, even death on the cross, right? And the, the distinction is made between Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience. Active obedience is taking the law upon himself and discharging everything that the law requires. Okay, satisfaction comes in in this sense. Remember, satisfaction means to do enough. Hmm. In this case, it's to do enough to fulfill the covenant, to do enough to fulfill all that God has commanded humanity and because he's born in, with this very particular identity as a Jew, the offspring of Abraham, he fulfills everything that was required of Israel in particular, right? The whole law, which Israel, of course, you know, the whole Old Testament is the story of Israel constantly, well, not doing that. They break it constantly, yeah. right? Um, Jesus fulfills it. This is his active obedience, his passive obedience doesn't mean passive in the sense of uh, passivity, but it's related to the, the passio, passion, suffering. And that his passive obedience is the suffering he endured. And in both cases, it's the active obedience rendered to God and the suffering he endured over the whole course of his life culminating in the passion and the crucifixion. And one of the striking things you'll find is not only do you have this emphasis on the whole life of Christ um, and it the, the, the key concept there being obedience, but you have far greater emphasis on the Garden of Gethsemane uh, narratives than you do today. Um, and this was something when I first got real deep into these issues about five years ago, I was really surprised by um, how much emphasis folks like Calvin and, and uh, uh, Peter Martyr and, you know, a whole host of others put on the Gethsemane narratives. And they see that as a key part of the passive obedience of Christ, because this is where we see his emotional suffering. This is where we see the suffering within his soul, the great agony that he undergoes, um, culminating, of course, the next day in the cross. But this leads to a differing understanding then of what it is that is going on when Jesus prays for the cup to be removed. Um, you know, for, for a lot of people today, that gets explained in terms of, well, uh, the cup is an allusion to the cup of wrath passages in the Old Testament. And um, uh, Jesus is afraid of, that God, about, of, of all the wrath that God is going to pour out on him the next day in punishing him. And um, he, he asks God to take it away. But of course, he knows that God can't possibly take it away because this is the only way God can forgive sin. And that's just not the, the explanation that you find in most of the, the Reformation-era texts. Uh, the cup is, some will associate it with the Old Testament text, some do not at all. So Calvin, for example, who, who we're often told in the literature, is the first person with a fully developed doctrine of penal substitution. 
he does not see any allusions to cup of wrath passages. It's simply that um, that this is the cup of adversity that God has decreed Christ to to bear. Uh, it, it's the the suffering that God has said this is what you need to do, and Christ prays for it to be removed. And on Calvin's view, it's not a it's not a, a matter of well, it's impossible to take it away because there's no other way to save humanity. Uh, Calvin was very clear that of course there were other ways God could do it. Um, but then, then we'll get into more on so, that when we just, talk about just this a comment there because I think this, this I could be wrong here, but I think it helps me understand a passage that has troubled me. Um, is when Jesus makes a reference to I believe James and John about right. uh, this cup. Uh, because it's it's always, it's not that he says, are you willing to bear this cup? He, he says, you will bear it. That's what right. troubled me quite a bit. So if you look at it as like his general kind of uh, mission in life and, and the adversity he has to go through, that's exactly what they're going to do. They're, they're going to go through a very similar kind of adversity. Yeah, and culminating in death. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, and I think that, I mean, it, you know, switch hats a little bit from historian of doctrine to New Testament scholar. Um, I I like the reformational view uh, of people like Calvin because it preserves the connection there, right? So as a New Testament scholar, I look at the the Gethsemane narratives and I say, okay, do we have any allusions here that are are being made with the reference to cup? And if so, what are the, the antecedents? Well, the gospel narratives give us a direct antecedent just a few chapters back. And so we've got this, this language of, you know, can you bear, can you drink this cup and can you be baptized with the same baptism I'm going to undergo? And I say, well, right there we have the antecedent that explains any language of illusion. Do we have any Old Testament illusions here? And I go through the text and I, I do not actually see any reason to think the cup is alluding to anything in the Old Testament. But... If I were persuaded of that, I still wouldn't hold to the other view. Because when you look at Psalm 73, the, the passages in Jeremiah, Isaiah, and such, um, the, the cup there that is poured out is the exile, right? God's wrath displayed in the exile of Israel in Judah. And Israel continues to experience the, uh, the penalty of, of that great sin of immorality, injustice, idolatry, perpetuated by generations of kings, princes, and others, that God finally had said, enough is enough. You're going to be taken from the land, right? It's the fulfillment of the covenant curses of Deuteronomy. Well, at the time of Jesus, Israel is still dominated by foreign powers, mm. The majority of the Jewish people still live outside the promised land. Uh, there is no king on the throne. Right? So all the covenant curses are still being experienced by every Jew every day. And Jesus lives his whole life bearing that sense of the divine uh, punishment for sin. And so... If there were an allusion to those texts, uh, and this is how some of the early Protestants who do see an allusion take it, is, well, he's experiencing the covenant curses. 
and it's in solidarity with the people he came to save Israel. Um, and I, I think I think these views help maintain uh, the, the the connection within the Gospels and make better sense of if there's a connection crossing the the Testament boundary here. It keeps it in in continuity with what those texts mean in the Old Testament, rather than this this popular view today of, well, God has, I mean, they almost ontologize wrath, right? Mm. As if it's a substance or a stuff that is going to be poured out until the last drop for the last sin hits Jesus. And I, I, you know, if it's a matter of, is this biblical or not biblical, I think the, the reformational view is very biblical. I am not persuaded by this other view. Okay. Uh, even though, you know, now, now both are talking about Christ bearing the wrath of God, but they mean different things by that. And, um, and I, I think we, we need distinctions, lots of Correct. distinctions. <laughs> um, and this is where reading the primary is sources. That. Yeah. yeah. Good theology is going to require that. Um, so what would be kind of the, the modern, uh, I mean, you, you touched on this, but um, in what way is the modern view different than the 17th century view? Well, how about I explain to you the 17th century view first? Correct. Yeah. Okay. All right. Here, here's kind of the story of what happens. Now, this, it, I'm simplifying the story a little bit, right? I mean, there, there's lots of little interesting uh, um, exceptions to the rule. Um, we, we have actually two different ways in which uh, the, the Catholic view was sometimes parsed out prior to the Reformation, which leads a few early Protestants to talk almost in the 17th century way because they, they see works of satisfaction as divine retribution. Um, so I'm simplifying a little bit. The majority Reformational view um, was challenged by a guy named Faustus Socinus. And he's objecting, Socinus is objecting to both the Protestant and Catholic views at the same time, right? Because what the Protestants and Catholics agree upon is that Christ made satisfaction for sin in our place on our behalf. They disagree with what that means with regard to the temporal penalties of actual sin. And there's lots of stuff that follows from that with regard to purgatory and etc. right? But they agree on three out of four points. And so Sinus says, well, well, why couldn't God just forgive sin? Why, doesn't he, why, why does he require Christ to suffer at all? And so Sinus takes the view that that Christ does not make satisfaction for sin at all. Mm. And this is where you're going to get the strong kind of moral exemplar view. Um, he's got a little bit more to his theology than that. He, he, he says that, it, that Christ does something that leads the Father to give him the right to basically ask for forgiveness on everybody else's behalf. Um, so Socinus, he's often portrayed as a pure moral exemplar guy. There is a little bit more to his theology than that. But he rejects satisfaction full court. Now, what's often missed in the literature on Socinianism is that 
Socinus is not primarily concerned with satisfaction. He's concerned with the Trinity. And he gets wants to get rid of satisfaction because there's an argument from satisfaction to the Trinity. Right? So to use uh, Al Planting's language, um, he's, he's trying to present a defeater-defeater. Right? So he's an anti-Trinitarian. Trinitarians cite satisfaction as a reason for saying Christ must be fully divine. So if you read Anselm's Curdeus Homo, Why Did God Become Man? Uh, he's got an argument in there saying, well, for uh, uh, somebody to make satisfaction for humanity's sin, they have to be perfectly innocent, free from sin. They don't owe the debt. Um, they have to, so they have to be, and they have to be human, right? Uh, it has to be uh, a human being who does it. But it has to be of such worth and value that it more than compensates the infinite offense of sin against God's majesty. And the only way that can be done is if the one who makes satisfaction is also fully divine. And Protestants and Catholics alike agree on that, right? That only the God-man can make full, complete satisfaction or full, complete satisfaction for original sin and the guilt of of uh, of actual sin, and then transform the penalty of actual sin. Uh, the main exception here would be uh, John Dun Scotus, who thought perhaps an angel could do this or something by God's decree. Uh, but the majority view is is in agreement with Anselm on this. And so Sinus wants to get rid of this argument for the Trinity, right? Because what you've got is, hey, if if Christ made satisfaction and satisfaction can only be made by somebody who's fully divine, fully human, well, gosh, you've got like the key plank for the doctrine of the Trinity mm -hmm. right there, right? So he's going to undermine satisfaction and say, well, yeah, but God can just freely forgive. Now, most of the church fathers, most of the medievals, except Anselm and a few others, and most of the reformers agree with Socinus that God could have, if he had wanted to, simply pardoned humanity. But he chose for Christ to make satisfaction because that secures for us a better, richer, more lavish kind of salvation. 17th century folks come along, they're responding to Socinianism. And they, they become very uh, fixated on this. Uh, J.I. Packer, in his famous essay on penal substitutionary atonement, says something like they, they became mesmerized by Socinianism and um, started formulating these natural theology arguments from moral governance to say God can't possibly have had the option of forgiving sin without satisfaction. God's nature is such that, now Anselm's argument was God's nature is such that he cannot forgive sin without receiving satisfaction. In the 17th century, they don't opt quite for Anselm's view, right? So they're wanting to say, look, so Sinus and you guys, you're wrong. Christ did make satisfaction. Uh, there was no other way that God for, could forgive us. Uh, it was absolutely necessary. But instead of Anselm's view of God cannot forgive without receiving adequate satisfaction, they changed the meaning of satisfaction. 
And it's now God cannot forgive sin without punishing it. So God must exercise what John Owen calls vindicatory justice. He must punish sin in that criminal vengeance kind of sense once sin has been committed. So we have here like he three different himself. He has to do it. Huh? Like it's, it's sort of like he can't help himself. It is in his right. nature. He has to do it. That's right. So you have three different views of the necessity of, of, the, of Christ's satisfaction here. The Augustinian view, uh, this is what I'm calling him, the Augustinian view, uh, you find this in De Trinitate 13 and elsewhere in Augustine, as well as in Athanasius and all sorts of church fathers. Um, this is the predominant view amongst the fathers and the medievals and reformers. It's that God could have pardoned us freely. He could have redeemed us by some means other than Christ, by some means other than satisfaction. But if he does it by means of satisfaction, only a God-man can make satisfaction. And this is what God did, in fact, choose to do, because it gives us a richer, more adequate, fuller, more lavish kind of salvation than was otherwise possible. It was fitting, right? So the, the, the key term they often use is it was fitting for God to redeem in this manner. Mm. It's a fitting way of expressing the full range of the divine attributes, compassion, mercy, love, justice, equity, uh, um, holiness, and so on. And in making satisfaction, Christ does a work of justice, a work of justice that meets the demands of God's just character, while God is also expressing mercy. Um, so it is, it is mercy consistent with justice. The Anselmian view is God's nature is such that he cannot pardon sin. He can't redeem in any other way other than with satisfaction. So, uh, so Anselm will be distinct here from Augustine. Mm-hmm. Right. And what, what the Augustinian and Anselmian view have in common is they agree about the nature of satisfaction. It is Christ rendering unto God the, the penalty or compensation that he has decreed for sin in our place and on our behalf um, that this, is, this uh, 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 it propitiates God in the sense that he is pleased by it and no longer angry. It averts his wrath. Um, and, and this is not always explicit, but I, I think often implicitly at play here is the idea that it restores humanity to a place of honor, right? Mm. So, yeah, when there's wrongdoing, it's one thing to say, well, okay, I, I forgive you, but nothing's been done to make amends, right? And maybe there are times and places where that's an appropriate response to somebody. But when somebody says, will you forgive me? And they've made satisfaction. They, they've done something to compensate for their wrongdoing. Justice is restored in a richer sense, right? And there's always the suspicion that, well, if somebody gets away with what they did and there's no punishment, no penalty, no consequence, is justice violated here? 
but in cases of satisfaction, and, and I want to emphasize satisfaction is a mundane notion, right? It's an everyday notion that gets brought into ancient Roman law, medieval law, gets brought into theology. But at the end of the day, it's still a mundane notion mm -hmm. that we operate on, even if we don't use the word, in our everyday relations with one another, with our family members, with our friends, with our employers, and so on. Now, so the, the, the Augustinian and Anselmian views agree on what satisfaction is. It's a kind of reparation or compensation for wrong. And that in, very well may involve, this is speaking mundanely, it very well may involve poena, right? Penalty, pain. And it might be the penalty of loss. You give something up or you make a payment or the penalty of sense. You experience something unpleasant. Um, so th th this is, of course, a medieval distinction. Poena sensus and poena damni. And damni, it just means loss, right? We, we often think damnation means inflicting something. It really means the loss of something. So um, they agree on that. But then in the 17th century, you get this, this argument for the idea that God must punish every sin. And if he doesn't punish the offender, then he must punish a substitute in the offender's place. And the person who did the most to popularize that view in the English-speaking world was John Owen. Uh, he probably wasn't the first to have that view, but he probably did more than anybody else to popularize it. And Owen, interestingly, he knows that his view disagrees with the reformers. He admits that. Mm. So he writes a book uh, called The uh, Dissertation on Divine Justice. And in the preface of the dissertation, he points out that, that everybody is telling him, yeah, John, you can't take this view. Nobody believes that. That, that goes against all the big names. That's, I mean, you know, and remember, like Augustine is, is a great hero to early Protestants, right? And people are citing Augustine and saying, but Augustine says. And people cite John Calvin to him and, because Calvin dis, uh, agrees with Augustine on this, um, uh, probably in a dozen different places, um, which I've collated. I, no, sorry. Um, in the literature on Calvin, sometimes he's read as if he agrees with Owen's view. That's actually very common. And occasionally people will point out, well, there are one or two places where Calvin seems to take a different view. There are actually at least a dozen passages where Calvin clearly takes the Augustinian view. Mm. And interestingly, he does so after his interactions with uh, Laelius Socinus. Faustus Socinus's uncle, the guy from whom Faustus got his theology. Uh, so Calvin responds to very early Socinianism by embracing the Augustinian view even tighter. What John Owen is going to do is John Owen actually starts off holding the view that God could have forgiven us freely or redeemed us by some other means. So if you read uh, The Death of Death and The Death of Christ, uh, that's the view he takes there. But a few years later, Parliament instructs Owen to respond to Socinianism. He writes this book, A Dissertation on Divine Justice. He says right up front, yeah, everybody tells me I can't take this view. 
They cite people like Augustine and Calvin against me. However, here are a few people who also have, have gone this route, and he names them. And uh, these are uh, uh, early Protestant scholastic theologians, the names of which most people watching this will have never heard of, uh, people like Lubertus and so on. Um, then Owen jumps into a natural law, natural theology kind of argument. And he's going to argue that it is impossible for God to pardon sin freely. Uh, he must punish it. Along the way, he rejects a distinction from the medievals that many early Protestants knew and endorsed. A distinction between satisfaction to do enough and satisfaction to suffer enough. Right? So satisfaction to do enough, satisfaction to suffer enough. And so some of uh, Owen's own contemporaries like Anthony Burgess and Samuel Rutherford endorse this medieval distinction and they say, what is it that's going on here on the cross? Christ is making satisfaction. It is not satisfaction. Now the background to this is on that purgatory view, God inflicts punishment, but it's going to be of a satisfactory nature. But what the damned in hell experience is something different, a different sort of penalty. Their penalty is God inflicting retribution. It is satisfaction, suffering enough. But because they can never adequately suffer enough, it will never come to an end. Okay, Owen rejects this distinction, even though other Protestant writers of the time hold to it. Um. Later on, in a different work on this, he's going to reject the classic medieval definitions of satisfaction and slightly alter an ancient Roman one to make it consistent with this idea that what is happening at the cross is that the Father is exercising vindicatory justice, retribution for the sins of all the elect upon Christ. Now, that's where this modern view that's been uh, uh, repopularized over the last 20 years is coming from, right? It's the idea that God punishes his son with all the wrath that you and I would have otherwise experienced in hell if Christ was not there as our substitute. And that's what lies behind this kind of quantification almost of wrath. As if, well, there's a certain number of sins that I've committed. There's a certain number of sins you've committed. Uh, we deserve a certain amount of wrath and fury for those sins. And therefore, Christ has to experience all of that all at once for everybody he's going to redeem. And so we have of certain popular preachers who... who um, Give, give analogies like imagine that the cross is is in a valley and here's Jesus on it and there's a dam 10,000 feet high and 10,000 feet wide or I think they say miles actually 10,000 miles wide and 10,000 miles high and behind it is all the wrath of God for all the sins of all the elect and at the cross the dam breaks and all that wrath and fury is poured out and for three hours Jesus is absorbing all that wrath until it is fully exhausted 
until the very last drop has been sucked up. Now, Owen understands that wrath shouldn't be ontologized. He's not going to use a crude analogy like that. Owen's view has some real nuance to it. He, he does talk about um, some ways in which the essence of damnation is what Christ experiences. It's not necessarily everything that the damned in hell will actually experience. So his view has more nuance than the modern view. Um, and at times, uh, because he, he's coming out of uh, uh, a confessional context that is deeply influenced by the Reformational view, he uses the same formulations that you find in all the Reformational writers. And sometimes he means what they mean. Sometimes he's assuming this redefinition of satisfaction. Sometimes he's assuming the, uh, uh, the conflation of satisfaction and satispassion. So there's equivocation right there, right? Mm. But this is what allows Owen to introduce a different view of necessity that disagrees with both the Augustinian and Anselmian views and still come across as if he is teaching the traditional confessional Protestant view because he can use the same language of Christ made satisfaction. Now, one way you can really tell the difference between the modern view and the reformational view is not only do they hold to the Owenite view of necessity, but they also change the way they talk about satisfaction. So take out the, the hymn in Christ alone, right? There's that one line that's been controversial, that on the cross as he died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Now, what does that mean? Now, there are two different ways you could understand it, right? If you're somebody like, you know, John Calvin or Philip Melanchthon or, or you know, uh, William Ames, early Protestants, um, and you saw that language, what you would think is, okay, so on the cross, Christ made satisfaction for sin uh, on our behalf. And as a result, God's wrath is dissipated. It's no longer standing against us. We no longer need to fear it. Romans 5, he has saved us from the wrath to come. But what most people today probably mean by this is it was satisfied in an appetitive kind of sense. Mm. He expended all his wrath. He sated his wrath, right? And the difference shows up in who is the subject and who's the object of the verb. On a traditional confessional Protestant view, Christ made satisfaction to the Father or to his offended honor or to his majesty or to his wrath, a legal kind of language saying he has done enough so that retribution does not get meted out at all. On the other view, the father is the one who's the subject of the verb satisfy. The father satisfies his wrath and Christ absorbs it. Mm. Right? On the first view, Christ makes satisfaction. It's offered to the father the father can accept it or reject it. He accepts it on our behalf. On the other view, the father gives to Jesus what he would have otherwise given to us. So now we have two differing senses of substitution at work. Right? So on the, the, the 
this modern view, Christ is the substituted object of retributive punishment. On the other view, he's the substitute who does what we couldn't do on our behalf. He's the one who renders the active and passive obedience that God wanted from humanity. Well, the active obedience he wanted, the passive obedience we incurred. He's the one who, who made reparation or compensation or amends for sin because we were incapable of doing so because anything we tried to do is something we already owed God. Anything we could even attempt to do above and beyond that would be tainted by sin anyway and therefore not acceptable. Christ does all of this in our place and on our, on our behalf. So, right, all of this goes back to, okay, when we talk about penal substitutionary atonement, what sense of penal? What sense of substitution? Um, and we clearly have very different views in the tradition. Um, undergirding them are differing views of the necessity of satisfaction and the nature of satisfaction. And so I, I think the, the some some the, of this, uh, if if yeah. I stray off again, uh, course correct me. But some of this develops a like you're saying this natural theology develops a view of God that it seems to me that is problematic. Like God can't control himself. Like it it seems like there's something that is governing him, um, sort of like the youth of world dilemma brings to the surface, right? Yeah. Um, where if there is wrong that's done, like he just has to be wrathful to that wrong unless it's somehow met. Like he, he can't say, no, I'm just going to show mercy. Which, as a matter of fact, last week we were in our guy's Bible study, we were having a conversation sort of about this, <coughs> where in, in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sin, it, like it's not like God can't be present near them, or if he is, he's going to just lash out in, uh, in wrath and destroy them. But he's in the garden with them in the midst of their sin, and then he covers them yeah. uh, in the midst. Like there, there's a forgiveness of sorts that happens there. Obviously, there's consequences to their actions. They get kicked out of the garden, sin enters the world, and all that. But he he covers them. He's still merciful to them quite a bit. And then uh, added to that, uh, what happens in Isaiah six is very interesting to me. Uh, in that Isaiah says, "Man, I'm I deserve wrath. Like I'm woe is me, right?" Yeah. Um, and then God essentially says, okay, we're not going to hold that against you. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then calls him to, to his call in ministry. Um, well, he, he does purify Isaiah, correct. right? Yes, yes. will take the coal. Yes. Right. And, and uh, we have some Kippur going on there, some, uh, some purification. Yeah. So it's not quite a, just a simple. No, no, it's not. No, there's a def definitely there's a purification going on, but it, it doesn't seem like right. Like this view that God is just like has to be wrathful, right? Um, uncontrollably, like that's in His nature. Um, yeah, I, I think I think what you're pointing at is a uh, a long-standing objection to the Owenite kind of view. Um, to be fair to the 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 more nuanced defender of that position. Right? They, they do have a, a reasonable retort, and that is to say, well, this is part of his nature in such a way that, yeah. you know, what we're talking about is the divine holiness is such that it cannot help but react to sin. And right. of course, anybody who holds the Augustinian or Anselmian view will agree with that. The issue here is, right, okay, it's one thing to say that God's nature is necessarily offended by sin. 
that God is pure and holy in such a way that he, he cannot help but be offended when sin occurs. Mm -hmm. It's quite a different thing to say he must then do something in particular as a response to it. And the Owenite view is uh, that God must, once his wrath is provoked, once his displeasure has as come into play with the presence of sin, the Owenite view says he must then give to it the kind of retributive criminal punishment that one would experience in hell. Mm. The Anselmian and the Augustinian say, well, God has more than one option in front of him at this point. So Anselm famously says, well, God's nature is such he can't freely pardon, right? So he disagrees with Augustine and, and most of the fathers on that. But he says, God can either receive satisfaction or punish, right? So this is a, the famous Anselmian disjunction. Um, he could punish it outright or he can receive satisfaction that makes compensation. Mm. But the Owenite view, he's got a different disjunction. For him, God must punish. The disjunction now is it's either in the offender or a substitute, right? So two different disjunctions here. Um, and a classic objection is, well, it, yeah, but it does seem like then that God's wrath or vindicatory justice is more fundamental to his nature than his mercy. It seems to impede divine freedom. Yeah. And the, the re response back is going to be, well, God can only do those things that are consistent with his nature. And this is akin to saying God cannot lie, right? Uh, God cannot uh, break his promises and so forth. And there was actually a really big debate in the 17th century about whether um, the Owenite kind of claim is actually akin to those kinds of limitations on the divine nature. So you had people like uh, Samuel uh, Rutherford and William Twiss, um, uh, Thomas Goodwin, um, various others who said God's nature is such that he could forgive freely, he could require satisfaction, or he could punish. And what he chooses to do is a matter of his good pleasure and will. It is a matter of his wisdom. And that whatever he did would be consistent with his perfect justice. And, you know, someone said, well, yeah, but if he pardons, that's inconsistent with justice. And the answer to that would be, well, no, because for a pardon, you are saying that what was done is wrong. You aren't letting the person just get away with it. To mm -hmm. accept the pardon, you have to acknowledge your wrongdoing. And it can be done with conditions, right? Uh, um, you know, you can give a pardon that's conditional on the, the offender meeting certain requirements. Could just be repentance or something. Um, so the, the Augustinian view that that many of Owen's contemporaries held to um, would reply back and say, John, your view of divine necessity, you're claiming that God must punish, and this is a limitation like God must tell the truth, but we don't think it's of the same category. You're, you're mixing things up mm -hmm. here. And that all of God's works 
add extra outside the divine being. They are works that are freely done according to his goodwill and pleasure. And thus you, you understand all the necessity involved there in terms of what is fitting and in terms of what God's purposes or goals are in terms of teleology. And so they argued for what was called hypothetical necessity. Given the certain ends God has in redeeming humanity, yeah. certain things become necessary in order to achieve them. Okay. Owen and his, his allies argue for absolute necessity. But it's not Anselm's absolute necessity because he's changed what he means by satisfaction. This is phenomenal, by the way. I, I, I'm I'm just being a serious geek right now, um, and I'm enjoying it because I mean we can't uh, we could break this down in so many directions. I mean, there's like f divine freedom and God's freedom in creating a world. Why actualize a world in the way He's actualized the world? Uh, knowing people were going to sin, was Christ was going to come? Like, there's all these reasons. Really cool areas that could, this could all go into and. And it just gets connected when, when there's a consistency in it. Um, it. It's just phenomenal because for me, it's it's just how gracious God is. It, it really puts you in a place where you're just like in awe and in worship. Yeah. Um, he could have done it, in my mind at least, he could have done it in all these ways. But he specifically chose it to do it this way because this is the best way that you can actually know him to be who he yeah. is uh, yeah. in his nature. Just again, absolute, like you just fall into awe and worship and you're like, God, you're glorious and amazing. I think the Augustinian view comports better with scripture than the Owenite view. All right. And so, you know, back to our, our really early question, yeah. is it biblical? Okay. Um, so looking at the, the issue of necessity, um, well, if you're an Owenite, there's only one way you can understand the penalty Christ endured. Your philosophical presupposition has determined your exegesis before the fact. So you read Isaiah 53 and you read the chastisement language there, or you read 2 Samuel 7 and, and you read the, the, the punishment language there. Um, because your view says God must exercise this kind of vindictory retributive justice, you can't actually take the language there at face value as chastisement, as fatherly discipline, as discipline that trains. You can't connect those passages to Hebrews 5, where we're told that Christ suffered what? Well, to learn perfection, to serve as our high priest, right? Uh, there can't be another purpose there because it's about God exercising vindication. Um on a text like Romans 3, 21 to 26, when the text says God is both just and justifier in, in how he justifies us, right? the Augustinian view says, uh, well, God is perfectly just in who he is. That justness is manifest in the way in which he redeems humanity. He does so in a manner that is consistent with justice. Justice is understood broadly 
to mean not just, you know, in terms of, of sin and consequences, but also in terms of God uh, maintaining his rightness, his justness, and keeping his word, and fulfilling his promises to the patriarchs and the, the prophets. It's, uh, they, they understand this as, a, as an example of satisfaction, and satisfaction is always understood to be a work of justice that averts retribution. Right. Uh, so it's consistent with justice. Um, but it's not the exercise of retribution. But if you're an Owenite, you have to read it as well. For God to be just is to punish. It is not you, the possibility of God sending his son to make compensation, reparation, amends, satisfaction isn't even on the table as an option. Um, So now the Augustinian view, strictly speaking, is open to the possibility that the cross is something of God, like God punishing in that they could say, well, God could have chosen to do that. Maybe that's what he did. Let's look at the biblical text and see if they naturally point to that. Um. But the Augustinian also isn't going to say, well, anytime we have punishment language or anytime we have things like bearing sin being equivalent to punishment, we must understand that as retribution. The Augustinian can say, let's look at this case by case and see what the texts are saying. And when you get to a passage like Isaiah 53, you're going to say, well, but Mutsar, this is, this is not criminal punishment. I think Calvin was right about this. This is fatherly chastisement. It is punishment in a certain sense, but also it's punishment that the son takes upon himself as he enters into our humanity in a fallen world, takes the law upon himself, experiences the miseries of this life, becomes a man who experiences amongst those, min- those miseries loss, grief, sorrow, pain, Right, So Isaiah, he's the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He takes our infirmities upon himself. Mm. But part of what that means, right, Matthew 8 says that's fulfilled when Jesus heals people. Right? He, he takes his infirmities upon, our infirmities upon himself, not by becoming sick with all of our sicknesses, <laughs> but by healing them. He takes our sin upon himself and deals with it. And... Anyway, I, I think that the, the Augustinian view has more exegetical options, but the way it's traditionally understood comports better with a certain exegesis. Yeah. There are a few people in the tradition who have been Augustinians, but held to something like an Owenite view of satisfaction. Uh, they're, they're pretty rare, but they do exist. Um, so Yeah, it just seems to me it's not just... Um... It's not just that, but it also has a proper view of, uh, I would say, uh, kind of a view of God, like the divine. What what sort of a thing God is? Um, yeah. It's it's it seems to me that it's both biblically accurate and um, philosophically accurate. Uh, because I, w- I want to give God as much freedom and as much sovereignty as I can possibly give Him. Yeah. Uh, that's a person. That's a personal choice, right? Uh, in the sense that I just that the most sovereign I can I can say He is. I want to say He's that, and the most free. Um, yeah. uh, I don't want to. Well, and that and this has been pointed out before that um, 
that the, the, the view that the Protestant scholastics develop in response to Socinianism has a lower view of divine sovereignty hmm. than the Augustinian view. Uh, so I, I have an article in my files where uh, somebody looks at um, the, the, the post-Reformation Catholic and Protestant discussions of divine justice in relation to ne the necessities of the divine nature. And says, yeah, what, what we end up with is that the Protestant scholastic view ends up adopting a lower view of divine sovereignty in order to respond to Socinianism. Uh, so the apologetic tail here starts wagging the dog of theology. Yeah. And, um, and the irony, of course, is that you know, the, the folks who, who most endorse the Owenite or a neo-Owenite view are the young restless reformed guys who take themselves to have a high view of divine sovereignty. Correct. Yeah. And I would say, well, you know, you may have a higher view of divine sovereignty than certain other theological views, to be sure, but you don't have as high a view of divine sovereignty as well, John Calvin or St. Augustine or Philip Melanchthon or, and I, I mean, I could actually cite about 20 names here. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I've been, I have, one of the things I've been doing is going through a lot of these 16th and 17th century sources to identify who held to the Augustinian view, who held to the Anselmian view, who held to the Owenite type view. And it's, it's rather striking uh, how common the Augustinian view is into the second half of the 17th century. And even at the end of the 17th century, uh, and I point this out because the, the, you read most of the histories of doctrine and, and you know, historical theology textbooks, and they give this, this story that's just wrong. They say, oh, Anselm comes up with this view, the, the, the satisfaction theory of atonement. And the reformers modify that. Whereas Anselm talks about satisfaction of honor, they talk about satisfaction of, of uh, uh, justice, which this is just a false dichotomy because they both talk about both. Um, and then they say, well, Anselm believes in satisfaction's compensation or reparation, but the reformers believe in satisfaction through punishment. Well, that just shows a lot of ignorance of the medieval tradition because punishment, poena, well, that can mean loss, that can mean senses, that can mean lots of different things. It can be medicinal, it can be retributive, there's lots of distinctions here. And all satisfaction is some kind of poena, right? You're giving something or you're enduring something in order to make satisfaction as compensation or reparation. Uh, that's just always been the case. Um, but what, the, what they're trying to claim is that the reformers hold to this Owenite view. And it's very easy to find quotations where, where people like Calvin who will say things like, well, satisfaction, that is the compensation that averts wrath. Um, uh, and, and they're clearly operating with the classic notion, right? But um, the, where was I going with this now? <laughs> we, can, we can give you time to think about it. Yeah, my voice got raspy and I started thinking of tea. <laughs> so, um, but the, the uh, where was I? So 17th century view, ah, I lost my place okay. there, Arthur. It's okay. Um, 
I, I want I want folks to post po some uh, some questions uh, about this, and so some already have uh, posted some. But um, let's touch upon uh, recently uh, because I do apologetics, and William and Craig is a, is a hero to many of us. Um, and uh, Craig has been doing some interesting stuff where he's stepping out of his uh, philosophical. Um, I don't know, expertise. And, and some people would push back at me and say, no, 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 he's got a degree in, in theology as well, Art. You know, don't forget that. And that's fine, I'll take it. But, you know, the, the historical Adam kind of stuff he's written about mm -hmm. uh, recently. And then before that, he, he did a number of years of research and wrote a book uh, on the atonement. Yeah. Um, and uh, we actually have someone in here that said uh, that he is currently reading that book. Um, and I know in that book he tried to defend a historical penal substitutionary theory. Oh, there you have, they have it in your hands. Um, I do. And um, uh, what are your comments on that? What do you think he does good and, and, and maybe not yeah. so good uh, in it? So he, he, he did two books, actually. We have this little one in the Cambridge Elements series called The Atonement, which is a, a kind of precursor and a predecessor to... Uh, this bigger one with Baylor, Atonement, and the Death of Christ. Um, and uh, Bill was a teacher of mine at Talbot, took a couple classes from him. He, he contributed to a book I edited on Mormonism. I have a lot of respect for him and his work. Um, I, I will say this. Uh, the, some of the virtues of what he's done in these two books, I think, are these. That one he acknowledges that there are different versions of penal substitution. Mm. And a lot of recent defenders of the doctrine just don't do that. Um, he acknowledges that there are differing views of necessity, but he doesn't explore that very much. So he doesn't give the tripartite division that I've offered. Um, he just notices that there are necessitarian and non-necessitarian versions of penal substitution. And he doesn't really... Uh, uh, explore the types of necessity that are at play um, and how that affects exegesis and how you understand key terms like substitution and penal. So I would have liked him to do a little bit more or maybe a lot of bit more work on that aspect. Uh, he also acknowledges that some defenders of penal substitutionary atonement do not parse it out in terms of God punishing his son. Uh, so he points to um, kind of the classic on this. Uh, well, I've got it all covered with uh, stickers, but John Stott's The Cross of Christ. Right. Um, and Stott is emphatic at one point. He says, we should never speak of God punishing his son. Um, now, Stott, Stott's a, he, I mean, he's got his own kind of idiosyncratic version of penal substitution um, and a, a, an odd view of satisfaction that's out of step with the whole tradition. But um, anyway, most people haven't really noticed that either, right? And uh, a third thing that I think Bill does right and that I think is helpful is he says, well, it looks like the standard atonement stories that you find in, in all sorts of books on the history of this doctrine are mistaken in some pretty big ways about certain figures. So he says, I, I know this is kind of paraphrasing something he says in the preface to this one. He says, I noticed that they got Anselm wrong on some key points and Abelard and Hugo Grotius. 
And I was really happy to see him say that because I also had reached the conclusion that this standard uh, uh, literature gets all three of those wrong. Mm. But I also think the standard literature gets the reformers dead wrong. And at that point, Bill did not really question the story. Uh, he, he takes it that uh, Francis Turretin, another 17th century scholastic theologian, he, he really takes it that uh, Turretin is simply giving us a more sophisticated version of the view found in Luther and Calvin. He gives, I think, if I remember right, one or two quotations from Luther, one or two from Calvin, and then moves straight into Turretin. Um, and he doesn't realize that Turretin is operating with a different view of necessity that requires a different view of satisfaction. Now, I think Turretin is a little more nuanced than Owen on this. So there are times where I think, you know, Francis, you've got this right. You're going down the right path. And other times where I think, oh, but man, you let your, your, polemics against Socinianism make, make, lead you to make a left turn real quick. Hmm. And I don't think that was the right place to go. Um, Turretin, of course, like Owen, will acknowledge that Calvin and other reformers held a different view of necessity. But he downplays that. And where I was going earlier was this point, that at the end of the 17th century, um, if you read Francis Turretin around 1680, He's going to acknowledge that earlier figures held a different view on necessity, kind of downplay it and then say, yeah, but, you know, in light of Socinianism, we've kind of fixed that problem. And now this is what uh, most of the Orthodox hold to. If you read Hermann Witsius writing at almost exactly the same time, um, he's going to give you a really long argument for absolute necessity. He's going to still understand satisfaction more uh, uh, like the reformers than Owen does, but he's going to give a long argument as if this is an ongoing debate. It is just not settled. But then you can read somebody like Edward Stillingsfleet um, or even Stephen Charnock, who, again, 1680s, are going to write as if the hypothetical necessity view is the predominant view and that the absolute necessity view, yeah, some people held that view, but we, we, you know, we, we all know Augustine was right. Um, so interestingly, at the end of the 17th century, depending where you are and what circles you're running in, you have very different impressions of what is the predominant view amongst Orthodox Protestants. The standard story says, well, the reformers, they agreed with Anselm on necessity, disagreed with him on the nature of necessity, which is completely backwards. And then they read the 17th century view into the reformers, and then they make it out that that is the Orthodox Protestant view. And yet you will not find that view in any of the confessions. Got it. Uh, so so this, this, uh, I, I assume this lands you personally in, uh, in, in some hot waters with the uh, young, uh, restless, and reformed. Yeah. So the, I wanted to make sure I stated this, because... Um, so I... Huh, it's funny, I, I, I'm not reformed in that sense, right? Like, so I'm not a Calvinist, uh, but I, I view myself as being reformed in plenty of the senses in the sense that I'm not Catholic and I'm a Protestant. But um, you are, you are reformed, you, you're a Calvinist and you're defending the reformers in, in this thesis. You're saying, no, 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 
you guys are misunderstanding the, the reformers. And and uh, I like your your mug there has uh, yes. Uh, it says all arrested and reformed. And, reformed. and yes. I have uh, very good friends who are uh, who are reformed, uh, who've become a lot more rested than they were uh, in the <laughs> <laughs> in the early days. Um, and so so gets this gets you in trouble because you you probably get accused of all sorts of stuff. Well, I, I have been, uh, I, yeah, I was teaching a class a few years ago and, um, some, I, I, I basically laid out Calvin's view as an alternative to the young restless reform view, did not mention his name. Um, and there were some folks who got pretty upset about that. Um, uh, very, very upset about that and said, well, you, you're redefining penal substitution. You're mm -hmm. rejecting penal substitution. And they did, they just simply didn't recognize the view. Um, and, uh, yeah, because what they did, they assumed that penal substitution is something like say John Piper's view or, mm -hmm. you know, so somebody RC Sproul or something. Um, they're unaware that even in uh, the, the last couple generations, penal substitution has meant different things to people. So, you know, obviously we, we've already mentioned Stott, who, who says that you shouldn't talk about God punishing his son, right? John Piper does say that, right? He's very clear on that. Um, you have somebody like I. Howard Marshall, who when a debate broke out in uh, the United Kingdom, uh, I think around 2005 or something, um, they have a big conference on atonement. And it comes out with this book, The Atonement Debate. And I. Howard Marshall, New Testament scholar, taught at the University of Aberdeen. All sorts of, of evangelical New Testament scholars uh, did their training under him. Um, and he had been uh, defending penal substitution for a lot of years. He gets asked to give the keynote defense of the doctrine. Now, he, when I say a lot of years, um, he had published in 1969 this book, uh, The Work of Christ. Who years. Christ is, what he did, what he's doing, and what he will do. Right. So he was a longtime defender of the doctrine. And he gets to the conclusion of his, his keynote defense of penal substitution. And he says, it is not a case of God punishing Christ, but of God in Christ taking on himself the sin and its penalty." Indeed, at some point, the challenge needs to be issued. Where are these evangelicals who say that God punished Christ? Name them. Where are the evangelicals who will repudiate this statement written by John Calvin? Now, keep in mind, Marshall is a Methodist. Uh, we do not, this is quoting Calvin, we do not, however, insinuate that God was ever hostile to him or angry with him. Right? And Calvin's word for anger there is ira, wrath. You will not, this is Marshall again, you will not find them among serious theologians, although I recognize that popular preachers may err in this respect. And then he goes on to uh, complain about the critics of penal substitution, misrepresenting the doctrine, not understanding it. And he says, I, I, this is his, his final line, um, hopefully I have at least presented a case that helps to vindicate the traditional evangelical doctrine of the atonement. And I pray that it may help us towards an understanding of it that can command general assent and, the, and form the basis for our evangelism. Right, so what Marshall took to be the traditional evangelical view 
is one in which you do not say the father punished the son. And you could go back to the 1960s, read uh, J. Oliver Buswell, his systematic theology. Buswell was a super conservative Calvinist, former president of Wheaton. Um, and he's very clear on this, that you should never uh, uh, talk about the father acting against the son in, in these ways. Um, but even more, you know, again, just within the last few generations, uh, when I was in college, and I've gone and double-checked this, I've checked my notes in my, my uh, systematic theology textbook, what I was taught was Leon Morris's view. And the Young Russell's Reform crowd cite Morris all the time on propitiation. But then they go on and they define propitiation in ways Morris never does. So Morris will talk about propitiation as averting God's wrath, setting it aside, turning it away, uh, uh, dealing with sin so that there is no more wrath. And he'll get quoted on that to defend propitiation as the translation of hilasterion and hilasmos and hilaskamai and, and so on in the New Testament. And then they go on and define propitiation as if it means something like venting or pouring out wrath or mm. sating wrath which is just not what the word means, right? And, you know, I scratch my head when I read Wayne Grudem and these guys doing this. It's like, go read the Oxford English Dictionary uh, just for what the English word means. Read your, your Bauer, Danker, Art, and Gingrich or your Muraoka Septuagint lexicon or your Liddell, Scott, and Jones. None of them define the relevant words for propitiation that way. Um, it means to turn aside, to do something pleasing, right? It has a positive sense as well, right? To please somebody so they're no longer angry. Well, I, I, when I had people criticizing me, I thought, okay, where is this coming from, right? I mean, I, I'm giving a pretty traditional evangelical view, uh, and they don't recognize it, which is what got me to doing all the research on, you know, what's the whole history of this thing? Well, I went back and I looked at Morris, I thought, yeah, I'm remembering Morris, right? This is what was quoted in the systematic theology, probably the same one you used at Life Pacific, uh, Van Cleve, Duffield mm -hmm. and Van Cleve. Yeah. <clears throat> then I, I looked at some stuff I, I'd had at Talbot and, and whatnot, and I got to the point where I thought, you know what, I need to just, uh, um, and, well, one of the books I read as a student uh, in college was Leon Morris's Epistle to the Romans. Mm. Right, cover to cover, every word. In fact, I don't remember Morris taking this young, restless reform view. So about a year and a half ago, I thought, okay, I want to, there's a couple of his books I want to finish reading. I'd only read part of them. Um, and then I, I discovered he had more books than what I knew about. And I ended up just going ahead and reading or rereading all six of Morris's books on the cross and atonement. So I have those. There are six of them here. Uh, the cross in the New Testament. The atonement. The cross of Jesus. This is his last one. Probably in some ways his most interesting one and least known. Uh, you've got this one, the story of the cross. The glory in the cross. And of course his very famous apostolic preaching of the cross. And I mean you can see I've got tabs on all of these and yeah, I went through and I reread every one of them, plus the relevant sections of his New Testament theology, his commentaries, and so on, just to see, does he ever, ever talk in the way the young restless reform do about propitiation? 
And I can say with confidence, no, he doesn't. He just doesn't do that. And the view that he presents, now he doesn't have the whole history of the doctrine in view. He, he's not thinking about differing forms of necessity. But the most consistent thing you find throughout from his earliest treatments on is an Augustinian interpretation of Romans 3. Uh, that God redeems us in a manner that accords with divine justice, right? Um, that, as he puts it in his commentary, which is one of the last things he wrote on here, is the claims of justice as well as the claims of mercy are satisfied. That's what it is for God to be just and justifier. And he doesn't parse it out in terms of the father meeting out wrath and retribution on the son. I have a few quibbles with a couple things Morris says about the cry of dereliction and whatnot, but for the most part, what he gives you without having the traditional language is a traditional reformational view. And when he touches on necessity, there, there are a few places. Sometimes he talks like an Augustinian, sometimes like an Anselmian, but never <laughs> the Noahite. Um, yeah. But this is just within... Uh, our lifetime, right? I mean, you know, Morris was alive at the same time as you and me. Um, Howard Marshall just died a few years ago. Uh, you know, stopped just a few years before that. And yet the debate in the atonement wars today, right? It's not really about Stott's view. It's not about Morris's view. It's not about Marshall's view. It's about well, it's the John MacArthur, John Piper, R.C. Sproul type of view, which the proponents of that view wrongly claim to be the traditional Protestant view, wrongly claim to be the view of the Reformers, uh, and wrongly claim to be requisite for Protestant orthodoxy. Mm. Now, they're more than welcome to argue that it's true, that it's biblical, that it better accounts for what scripture says, that it's philosophically more coherent, right? I am all for that. And what, what you get from Bill Craig is basically a nuanced version of Francis Turretin's view, hmm. right? I would call his a neo-Turretinian view or something like that. Um, and what he does commendably is he tries to bolster it by thinking about issues in the philosophy of law and uh, uh, issues with justice and punishment and whatnot. Yeah. But at the end of the day, he has a view that says God cannot pardon sin freely. He must punish it. And though he's not going to quite have the uh, a drop of wrath or, or a drop of blood for every sin type of view that certain forms of limited atonement really require, um, he does basically have that uh, maybe an updated version of that 17th century view that's a little bit more nuanced and responsible than what I see from some of the young restless reformed crowd. Yeah. And um, I think it's uh, important to even note here that uh, what you're sharing about um, is it's not a it's not actually a Wesleyan or Arminian versus Calvinist debate per se. Uh, uh, no, there, because Arminius, yeah. yeah, if you read Arminius, he holds to the traditional reformational view. Uh, some of his followers, the early 17th century uh, Arminians uh, in particular, late 16th century, some of them 
veered in other directions. Um, you know, Hugo Grotius is, of course, a very famous defender of an Arminian view. Uh, but what he's trying to defend is a classic view of satisfaction. Yeah. But he has to de he develops a whole interesting natural theology of divine justice to undergird it. And interestingly, I mean, his view is penal, it's substitutionary, but it's a very different kind of view than, say, John Owen. And if you read somebody like John Owen, you see that he and Grotius are involved in the same exact kind of natural theology project, um, but they end up differing as to what is the right sort of divine justice that undergirds it. Is it rectoral justice, uh, which is Grotius's view, or vindicatory justice, which is Owen's view? But either of those views could have been called the moral government theory. Either of them could be called penal substitution. Um, it's kind of an accident of history that Grotius's gets called moral government and Owen's gets called penal substitution. Um, but there was a Calvinist version of, of Grotius's view in the 19th century, a very popular uh, Jonathan Edwards Jr. And many people who were disciples of Jonathan Edwards ended up adopting that view. Uh, it was very popular through into the second half of the 19th century. Um, but yeah. This is, the, you know, the, this whole conversation uh, kind of brings to the surface um, that it is so important for us to understand historical theology, for us to understand the development of historical theology, who is connected to who and how that stuff gets developed, and then very important to read the original sources. So yes. if you're and reading someone... the original languages. <laughs> Right, original Correct. sources in original languages. Yeah, uh, because one of the problems we have, and I think this is partly why people don't see the Reformational view, is a lot of the translations starting in the 19th century. Not only did theologians start using the word atonement rather than satisfaction, they start translating satisfactio, satisfaction, expiatio, expiation. Uh, reconciliatio, reconciliation, all by atonement, right? So you get translations of texts like Calvin's Institutes or his commentaries or other early uh, uh, Protestant sources that give these, what, what undoubtedly the translator thinks is a helpful way of rendering it to make it more accessible to the layperson. Uh, they do this by using the word atonement to cover a lot of Latin terms, but as a result, you don't see the language that the, the categories that earlier generations were operating with, and you don't end up picking up the distinctions that are at play. And so everything becomes atonement, right? And all kinds of penalties become penalty, and all kinds of substitution becomes substitution, and yeah, and then people just make assumptions on what this language means and think, well, I know what the doctrine means. And it's whatever version of the doctrine they were first acquainted with. Right? And of course, you know, way back when I was in Scotland doing my doctoral work, I first that's where I first came, came, realized there was something wrong in the atonement discussion. Mm. I was procrastinating one day and I'm in my office and I'm on the computer and I had just finished lunch and I got onto some uh, parachurch website. I don't remember which one. And there's an article on penal substitutionary atonement. And at that moment, if you had said, hey, Carl, do you hold the penal substitutionary atonement? I would have said, oh, of course. 
Now, of course. Now, my doctoral work was on the Epistle to the Hebrews. I'd spent a lot of time looking at, at Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Exodus, Dead Sea Scrolls about sacrifice, right? the different kinds of sacrifices, priesthood, etc. And I read this article, and it starts off with a section on the Old Testament, which portrays the animals being punished in place of the worshiper. I thought, what a weird view of sacrifice. Where is this coming from? That's not what Leviticus is about. And as the author went on, I thought, well, this isn't what I understand penal substitution to be. Right? For me, penal substitution was about Christ dealing with sin by suffering and dying on our behalf. It's about him bearing the punishment that Pilate uh, imposed upon him. And I'll note, you know, in Luke, this is the only place where we have punishment language associated with the suffering of Christ. It's when Pilate says, I will punish him mm. and then release him. And then Pilate sends him to be punished. Right? It's never about God punishing, right? But the death Christ endures is the penalty God decreed for sin. Right? So I take it that well, Christ dies, he, he pays the penalty, God counts that on our behalf. And then I, I read this article, I was like, what are you talking about? That's just not the view. Now, at that point, I had already started publishing on Calvin. I had one article out, and so I'd spent a lot of time with Calvin. So I, I don't recognize this in my, from my reading of Calvin. This isn't the reformational view. And I didn't think a whole lot more of it. I just thought, well, that's just sort of a weird article. And a few years later, I found that, well, gosh, there are a lot of people talking that way. Uh, but then I looked at other works on atonement, uh, defending penal substitutions, like, okay, no, that's what I believe right there. You just explained it. But it's a different view. And then I found books where the authors seem to be equivocating between chapters, like edited volumes, right? Mm. So there's one called The Glory of Atonement. And I was reading chapters in there. It's like, okay, author A says all this stuff I agree on. Author B says all the same stuff and then adds something that, I don't think is required or necessary, and I don't think author A actually had in view. So, you know, you might read something like this. Uh, I've got examples here. <laughs> um, as, a, as a good professor does. <laughs> yeah, well, I have handouts. I have handouts galore. Um, so, like, here's, here's something that I think anybody who holds to penal substitution would agree on. Because God is perfectly holy, he is necessarily offended by sin and his wrath is kindled, right? But as we've already pointed out, some people then say, therefore, God must punish every sin. Some people will say, therefore, God must receive satisfaction for sin. Others will say, uh, God could have done something different, but he chose for Christ to make satisfaction. But the, 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 the first part of the statement does not entail the second. All right? Another one is, well, Christ paid the penalty for sin. Right? But then others will say, well, that means then that the Father punished Christ. Well, that's just a bald non sequitur. It does not follow. Right? If God has decreed a penalty, Christ has taken it upon himself. And that's the, the, the metaphor we, we frequently see in early Protestant writings is he takes upon himself the penalty. Mm. It doesn't require the Father to punish because the analogy is mundane satisfaction the analogy is what happens in the Catholic practice, which is built on the mundane thing. It's that the offended party has stipulated what is required in order to not exercise retribution. What would be satis, 
faktia, what is enough, to do enough. Um, you know, another one is on the cross, Jesus took upon himself God's wrath against sin. Right? That if if death and suffering are, are the penalties that God has decreed and Christ endures it, there's a straightforward sense in which he bears the wrath of God. Hmm. But it doesn't follow that the Father actively poured out wrath upon Christ. Right? So this gets back to that earlier difference between you know, why the reformers and the you know texts like the Heidelberg Catechism talk about Christ bearing the wrath of God over the whole course of his life versus it, it it's this three-hour thing at the cross um, and i'll note too that some of the uh, uh some of the 17th century guys objected to that three-hour uh, uh pouring out view Hermann vitzius uh, uh has a great uh, uh thing where he goes after it and says that is not the reformed view that we learned in our dutch reformed churches and he, he tells you what the Heidelberg Catechism says on it and rejects that. Uh, uh, and anyway, that was a view I mean, that it just was... Seems, uh, it, that kind of a view just seems, because I, I hear it so much, um, and uh, it just seems to it, like Jesus' entire life is pointless right. till at the very least three years when he's doing ministry, right? Um, right? And then this, this death part. It's like, well, what about like everything else. It's like, well, right. we don't talk about that. Like, it's like, well, the, that, that is the gospel, right? The kingdom of God has come. Yeah. Like this is, <laughs> this is the whole thing of the gospel, but it just gets ignored. Um, I want to well, jump into I some, think, some. I think that's right. And, and what you're getting at is that active obedience part, which, which does make the whole of Christ's life yeah. uh, uh, vital to an adequate understanding of redemption. And when, when people objected to my teaching, um, what I quickly found is none of them that I talked to were familiar with the concept and that it had fallen out actually a long time before. Jay Gresson Machen, who founded Westminster, mm. actually has a, a thing where he, he comments how people uh, uh, don't seem to know about this notion anymore. J. Oliver Buswell, who was a, a student of Machen's, tells the story of how uh, Machen introduced him to the concept and he was unfamiliar. And this is like 1936. And yet, this is like standard Reformational, Lutheran, Reformed, Anglican, Baptist theology. Um, what ends up happening today sometimes is I'll see the, the language used. There, there are some people, of course, who understand it, but I also see people who turn it into a mere prerequisite. Well, Jesus had to be sinless in order to serve as the pure spotless lamb upon which all the wrath is poured out but his obedience doesn't actually accomplish anything. Well, on a classic view, yes, it does, because he's fulfilling everything that God intended for Adam, everything God intended for Israel, everything God intended for each of us. He is going to be the human being who fulfills all of God's law, uh, who obeys the Father to the uttermost, even to the point of this degrading, shameful death on the cross. And in doing so, he is going to merit reward, right? This is where retribution in the broad sense comes in. He is going to merit reward that we experience in union with God, in heavenly beatitude, and so on. Uh, so it, it helps ground the idea that salvation is more than a get-out-of-hell card. 
It's more than, well, we're just not punished because Jesus got punished. It grounds the idea that, that we end up experiencing the rewards that Christ has merited on our behalf, that he didn't just suffer on our behalf and pay a penalty in our place. He earned something for us. Mm. Very positive and astounding, which gets us back to our last discussion on theosis. Yes. Go check out that interview. <laughs> I, I'll actually uh, link that at the end of this so you guys can go watch that conversation about theosis. Fascinating. Uh, let me jump into some questions here. Sure. Uh, by the way, plenty of names and books have been suggested. You can go rewind this and watch it and just be like, ah, should go read that. Um, so Jeremy asks, uh, so what then, uh, what would you say that we are saved from? Well, we're certainly saved. We're, we're saved from our sins. We're saved from the corruption of sin, the the twisting of our nature. Right? Salvation ultimately is about healing. Uh, uh, he becomes what we are that we may become what he is. It's a healing of human nature by virtue of the hypostatic union. It is a payment of the penalty. So we are saved from the wrath to come. So we're, we, we can put it in terms of, of, of the eternal consequences of sin that we would have otherwise endured. We do not endure because we are joined to Christ who in our place and on our behalf made satisfaction for sin, paying the penalties, this is Calvin's language, to pay the penalty we would have otherwise had to pay in order to be reconciled to God. And I think that's a direct quote from Calvin. Um, it, it's, it's, he pays the penalty that was needed for satisfaction and reconciliation. And that saves us from the penalties that await those who, who don't pay that or who are not the beneficiaries of that. Um, and however we understand eternal damnation, we're saved from that. Cool. Um, Tyler's asking, uh, what are the parallels or the significance of the Day of Atonement? Uh, and Jesus. Um, like, I hope you understand that. Like, I, it's not going to go into detail, but. Well, Hebrews, of course, uh, my favorite New Testament letter. Uh, has a to lot that. To say. By the way, who um, do you think wrote Hebrews before you answered uh, this? Silas, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, Whoa, okay. We got to talk about this. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you want a, a podcast on why was Hebrews written and when and all that, I've got I've got the Ooh, goods. that's the next one. Um, no, I mean the Day of Atonement. Interestingly, right, Hebrews is the one text that very explicitly draws out connections there. Um, and on the classic Protestant view. The key bit there is that Christ serves as the high priest, just as Hebrews says, drawing on Psalm 110.4, you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And Calvin's famous uh, division of, uh, of Christology between Christ as prophet, priest, and king, right? This is the priestly work of Christ or the sacerdotal work of Christ. It's that he offers a sacrifice which expiates sin and therefore affects propitiation because there's no longer anything there to offend God, right? Um, and Hebrews is going to talk about Christ entering into the heavenly sanctuary and sanctifying the heavenly sanctuary. 
And I, I'm convinced that, that the author of Hebrews thinks that our sins on earth defile the heavenly sanctuary in some way, akin to how Israel sins out in the, the villages in the countryside somehow defiled the inner sanctum of the temple. Mm. And that he takes his blood into the sanctuary to purify it. Now, obviously, there's a lot of metaphorical language. It's hard to know how do we understand this metaphysically. I don't have all the answers to that. But I, I think certainly on the Day of Atonement, it's that, well, he is offering himself as the sacrifice that cleanses the heavenly sanctuary. And he is the priest who takes the blood into the sanctuary. But he's also described in terms of uh, suffering outside the, the gate, outside the city in chapter 13, akin to the animals whose bodies are burned outside the camp. Um, he's not, interestingly, uh, explicitly identified with the scapegoat. Yeah. But in the sense that the scapegoat takes the sins away and they're gone, Jesus takes them away. And you don't have to read anything more into the scapegoat you know, some people say, well, but the goat is going to die out in the wilderness and it's being punished. No, the, the point is that the, 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 the contagion of sin was in the sanctuary. It's put on the goat and it goes away. It's outside of sacred space. Uh, it's a little crude, but I think the scapegoat functions like a toilet, hmm. right? When you flush the toilet, you aren't really concerned where it goes. What you're concerned with is it's not in my house, Okay, I don't have to smell it anymore. Yeah. It's gone. And that's what the scapegoat does. It, it takes the sins away. It's gone from sacred space. It's no longer something you are liable for. So in terms of Day of Atonement, uh, I think the work of Christ functions in, in, at multiple levels with relation to the Day of Atonement. Uh, but it, it's also functioning as a, uh, a guilt offering. Right? And that's what Isaiah picks up on. Isaiah 53.10 says that, that he offers himself as a guilt offering or a reparation offering. And this is the one offering in the Old Testament that uh, clearly has the concept of satisfaction at work. Because you offer the guilt offering, and then if you have defrauded somebody, gypped them in some way, wronged them, you have to make compensation for it. So you repay whatever was taken plus 20%. You go above and beyond, right? So the Asham offering, uh, it, I think, is straightforwardly an instance of making satisfaction. And that's what Isaiah describes the suffering servant doing. Interesting. Okay. Um, so Jeremy asks, if we want to read Calvin on this, where would we start or where would you start? <laughs> Uh, well, the Institutes 2, 12 through 17 is his, his big main discussion. Um, in the middle of it, you have his discussion of the descent to hell, which is a little bit uh, uh, different from, from many accounts of it um, and easily misunderstood, unfortunately. Um, uh, very easily misunderstood. You have to be very careful in paying attention to his precise wording and what he says and doesn't say. Otherwise, you're going to think he's saying what what you know somebody like uh, uh, John MacArthur or John uh, Piper are saying. 
Um, but he also clearly says that the father was never wrathful toward his son. He's very clear about that. He's also very clear that uh, it's the obedience of Christ that is the operative notion and that Christ paid the penalty over the whole course of his life. Mm -hmm. What I think Calvin gets at with regard to, to the descent is the idea that uh, Christ endured hell in the sense that we often use the word hell. It turns out that in... Like in suffering. Yeah, suffering, pain, um, you know, you know, you, you go through a terrible circumstance and, and you might say, man, you know, I went through hell. Um, uh, and actually Calvin and, and some of the people who were taught by Calvin will elsewhere elaborate on that a bit and point out that scripturally the language of infernos in the Latin translation, uh, uh, Hades and Gehenna and such, that there's a range of meanings that this language can have. Um, and some of it is is mundane, like our language of, yeah, yeah, he, he put me through hell, or, or I, I went through a lot of hell on this. And that it's a way of getting at this psychological, emotional suffering Christ endured as the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Um, it, it's how he's going to unpack the Gethsemane narrative and the great agony that Christ undergoes. And he's going to say this is is uh, uh, the suffering that that is like the suffering of a condemned man. Interestingly, Calvin always associates the condemnation Christ endured with the condemnation he received from Pilate. He doesn't do what some later figures do and say that God condemned him as our substitute. Um, so again, you have to be really careful noting what he says and doesn't say. Uh, even better for Calvin in, in some ways is to look at some of his commentaries. I think the, the commentary on uh, the harmony of the Gospels, it's a long section. Uh, but there, his language of wrath and things, I, I think, is helpful. He, he'll talk about Christ apprehending the wrath of God, mm. seeing it whole, perceiving it. He use lot, uses lots of perceptual images. He never talks about the Father punishing, though he will talk about Christ bearing the penalty. But the, the greater penalty is this perception of God's anger against sin that causes torment in his soul. But that's not quite the same thing as God pouring out wrath in this modern sense. Um, Calvin's catechisms also, uh, the Geneva Catechism, the 1537 and 38 catechisms, uh, they give nice summary statements. Yeah, you better ask me a question or I'll give you more references. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's got a whole stack over there of references sitting next to him. Just <laughs> It's phenomenal. You got this all, all memorized. Um, man, it's it's been a pleasure. This has been... Uh, if you feel like you just drank out of a fire hydrant, you did. And that's probably good for you. And that would maybe mean that you go back and um, you listen to this again or you watch this again. Uh, because there is a lot of nuances and we got to be careful. Um, look, I, I see doing theology... With, it's ironic or just like mind boggling that we'd actually have to mention this, but doing theology is worship of God. Yes. And because it is a worship of God, then we ought to be careful in doing it to the best of our abilities in awe and in honor of God. And that even if we're quoting people, we want to quote <laughs> them truthfully because we want to be ethical and <laughs> good as Christians. We don't want to misquote people. And we want to understand them to 
in regards to what they were saying rather than we what we might want them to say. I mean, th- this t- to me again is just very simple Christian behavior that we would, uh, you know, just we practice throughout our lives. Uh, I don't go around misquoting people because that'd be lying. So let's not do that to historical characters. But again, the encouragement there being, um, go back, folks, if you have never, uh, do some studies in historical theology. Uh, do some studies in the development of theology and and, and read, if you can, uh, wide about it. Um, instead of kind of sitting there and just, we, we make all these accusations about historical characters without understanding their context, without understanding the language they were using and the the way certain words were used in their context that might be used different in our context. I mean, y- you do this stuff anyways when it comes to hermeneutics and understanding the Bible. Just got to apply that to history properly. So with all that said, uh, you've given us a, a third interview, it seems like. Uh, so I got to have you back on. Uh, that'll be in the new year because I got a whole lineup till the end of the year. But... Um, Got to have you come back on and talk about the book of Hebrews and authorship and all that. My favorite book of the Bible, by the way. Oh, so I knew I liked you. Oh, I, <laughs> the book of Hebrews is phenomenal. I mean, I could get stuck in the book of Hebrews for, and I want to say forever, but uh, for quite a long time. I, I just think it has so much that it gives us Old and New Testament. Just it develops whoever wrote it. Um, was, uh, <laughs> was a phenomenal thinker and yeah. knew his Old Testament and understood uh, the New Testament uh, very well, or you could say the New Covenant very well in regards to its applications. So I want to thank you. Uh, if you have some final references and final points you want to make, we'll end with that. <laughs> <laughs> We've been going, it's, it's, you said it, you know, when, when I reached out, um, he said, I don't know if an hour is going to be enough. Be ready to go beyond an hour. And so we've been going. It's two hours and we're coming up on 20 minutes. So, Yeah, you know, I, I joke, you know, I could go another couple hours and raise a whole bunch of other issues. And um, yeah, I, I think, you know, some, some kind of final thoughts. Is I, I think one, I think we would do well to move away from the whole theories of atonement approach to things. Hmm. You know, so this this was something that was invented by F.C. Bauer in uh, the early 19th century. Uh, he, he comes out with this book on on different theories of reconciliation in German, and everybody picks up on the and this becomes what we call now theories of atonement. And 19th century his, historians of doctrine or dogma, uh, they kind of took uh, the sketches from Bauer's book and sometimes added to them. But we ended up with kind of a stock set of different theories. And some of the ones they talked about in the 19th century are different than what we talk about today. But uh, you, you get this evolution of a stock set of theories, and they get reified. Um, they, they get portrayed as pure types. And then you're supposed to pick and choose from them hmm. which one is the right one. Or more recently, which one is the central one or the foundational one. And that's just not how Christians historically have done theology. They haven't thought of the work of Christ in terms of competing theories or theories hierarchically arranged. And and you get key figures associated with these theories. And very often, the standard story you get in the history 
books or in your systematic theologies is just wrong, just plain wrong. You know, so Abelard gets attributed with moral influence, but he has a lot more going on than that. Uh, Anselm is portrayed as the satisfaction theory as if it's uh, unique within the Middle Ages or something. Everybody talked about satisfaction. Um, you know, Calvin gets Owen's view attributed to him all the time. It's like, well, that, oh, there's different views here. But the whole theories of atonement framework forces us to pick and choose. And then people get surprised when they actually do go to some of the primary sources and they say, oh, wait a minute. Oh, Calvin has moral exemplar here. I didn't expect that. That's the bad view of Abelard. Or, oh, he's got uh, a Christus Victor here, and that's supposed to be the bad view of name somebody, who, who you, you know, Gustav Alain or somebody. And it's like, well, no, they, they were trying to understand everything Scripture says and to affirm everything Scripture teaches about this work that Christ did on our behalf that cost him his very life in order to redeem us from sin, hell, and the devil so that we could, could become glorious sons of God, right? As Hebrews puts it, that we could, uh, he could bring many sons to glory. And the sin problem, this is one thing I really appreciate about Leon Morris's work is he repeatedly says sin is a multifaceted problem, and therefore God had to do everything necessary to deal with it. And so there's a lot of stuff going on, and we should be very careful also that we don't take one of these theories we read about in some sketch that was echoing somebody else's sketch, echoing somebody else's sketch, without anybody really reading the primary sources and make that the standard of orthodoxy and heresy. Right. There are views that are outside the bounds of Christian orthodoxy and Protestant orthodoxy, mm -hmm. but there's a lot more diversity within those bounds than sometimes people want to admit. And the key thing for a Protestant evangelical, if you are committed to some kind of confessional view, the key issue is not your view of necessity or the concept of satisfaction you have leading you to say things like, God satisfied his wrath and Jesus absorbed it or something. The key issue for the reformers is, do you believe that Christ made complete satisfaction for both the guilt and the punishment of both original and actual sin? And the Protestant view is distinguished from the Catholic view in that you say, yes, he did. Therefore, I do not have to engage in works of satisfaction to appease God's wrath or to merit salvation or to get out of purgatory. I don't need to buy indulgences or pay for special masses. Christ did all of it, everything that was necessary that I might enjoy the full benefits of salvation and experience them uh, um, fully on, on the merits of what Christ has done and him alone. And that is really the boundary for Protestant orthodoxy. Amen. That's a good place to stop. That's a very good place to stop. Excellent. Thank you so much uh, for coming on. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I really, really hope that you feel like you just sat through a seminary class. Um, and you did. Uh, if that's uh, your experience, and that's good for you.
Um, some of this stuff is difficult to think through. That's okay. Uh, take some time. Listen to it again, like I said. Think through it again and run it by some people and think through it with some friends because this is a part of us loving God with all of our heart, mind, strength, and soul. And if you've enjoyed this interview, click on this video and you can watch my interview with Dr. Carl Moser on theosis. With all that said, take care. God bless you guys. And I will see you tomorrow for our live Q&A. Thank you.